Well, he's, I, I like that I, I nailed Wojciechowski and then I said prosecutor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I managed to get Wojciechowski. Uh, yes, prosecutor. Yeah, prosecutor. Prosecutor. Okay. Well, he started out his career as a prosecutor. I keep saying it. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Europolex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me is Europolex own Gabriel Heddingbrenn. How are you doing, Gabriel? Hi. Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. Um, feels quite surreal that it's June. Uh, I don't know how that happened. I feel like we just blinked and skipped three, yeah. four, five months. I don't know. Maybe we're just getting old, Gabriel. Yeah, what's happening? I guess quite a lot is happening actually at the moment, <laughs> politically. Uh, a lot of elections and a, uh, a lot of activity and uh, things to discuss. So Absolutely. that's exciting for, from a sort of political buff perspective. Yeah, and this podcast is, of course, no exception. And I have the great pleasure of sitting down with the Brussels Bureau Chief for Political Magazine and The Economist, that's Duncan Robinson, to talk about the European Union and some fiscal policy. So stick around for that. But first, of course, we do our lovely news bulletin, and I'm going to be taking us first to a coronavirus update with this week the European Centre for Disease Control, the ECDC, said that every country in Europe has now passed the peak of its coronavirus pandemic with the exception, of course, of Poland and Sweden. Now, the Infection Prevention Agency has reiterated that lockdown has been the most useful weapon in government's arsenals in decreasing the infection rates of the disease. In addition, its analysis has shown that every country in Europe that it monitors has an incidence rate of the virus below 20 per 100,000, except for Portugal, the UK and Sweden, with the latter being the only country to have over 100 cases per 100,000 inhabitants at the moment. This news comes at the same time as many European countries now not only reopening their economies, but also beginning to reopen their borders to other European countries for tourism and the like. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I must pitch in as, as a Swede that it's, it's quite remarkable what's happening with Sweden <laughs> sticking out and um, Swedes not being able to go anywhere. And, and as you know, as you'll see in our polls, the government not getting any negative sort of pushback on it in terms of public opinion. So quite a surreal time um, in Sweden and sad, of course, with the amount of uh, deaths reported. Now we're moving on to Serbia. Um, this Sunday, the Serbian parliamentary election uh, concluded with few surprises, but uh, still a very shocking result. Nonetheless, the ruling Serbian Progressive Party uh, which is affiliated with the European People's Party, won an overwhelming majority with more than 60% of the vote. Uh, and together with its allies, it will likely end up with over 230 of the 250 available seats in Parliament. This is in large part due to a boycott by the main opposition parties, uh, which deemed their boycott to be very successful in this case, uh, since only one opposition party managed to enter Parliament. So in their eyes, this proves that the election was not free or fair to begin with. Um, and in fact, the electoral threshold was even reduced to 3% for this election uh, in an effort to make it more legitimized. Uh, but yet still only one opposition party was able to reach parliament. And that was the right wing Serbian Patriotic Alliance. Uh, so it still remains to be seen what the political consequences of this will be. 
uh, and we'll obviously keep um, reporting on that for you. In more election news, shortly after Serbia, Iceland and Poland all go to the polls for their elections, uh, we'll also be getting national parliamentary elections on the 5th of July in Croatia. And, of course, if that's not enough, we've also got political parties in Macedonia now agreeing to hold their national parliamentary election on July the 15th. Being postponed from the original date of 12th of April due to the COVID 19 pandemic. The leader of the ruling centre left SDSM, Zoran Zaev, will seek a second term in office, with polls suggesting that neither his party uh, or the main opposition party, the centre right BMRODP MNE, will be able to form a government without the help of smaller ethnic Albanian minority parties, the traditional kingmakers in North Macedonia. I have to say, VMRO, DPMNE is a mouthful, <laughs> a mouthful, even by Europolexus standards uh, for acronyms. Yes. And I also want to flag, um, before I move on to Slovakia, that we also have municipal elections in France for those who care about local level politics in Europe as well. So moving on to Slovakia. So after months of speculation and tensions uh, within the center-left um, smear party there, which is the country's biggest party, its former prime minister and the party leader, Peter Pellegrini, finally has announced um, his future plans. Um, him and his allies are basically in the process of leaving uh, the party, and they want to create a new pro-EU social democratic party. The details, you know, including their name, um, should be announced by the end of the month, should consist of at least 10 MPs um, in the country's parliament, all former members of SMER. Uh, including a number of senior politicians who held key cabinet posts um, in the Smear-led government. So yes, um, sort of looming major political party change in Slovakia. Yeah, we'll all be watching that one really closely. Four months after elections were held at the national parliament back in February, Ireland looks set to have the formation of a new coalition government after negotiations have yielded results. So historic rivals, uh, Liberal Fianna Foyle and centre-right Fianna Gael, uh, have agreed to form their first ever formal coalition, which would also include the Irish Green Party. The agreement includes plans to rotate the position of Taoiseach, which is the, the head of government in Ireland, between the leaders of Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael, um, as incumbent Taoiseach Leo Varadkar will hand over to Fianna Foyle's Michal Martin for the first two years of his government, and then Varadkar will then take over in December 2022, uh, returning uh, to the job that he is currently in. The coalition still requires the approval of each party's memberships per their party rules. Um, and then, once it's been confirmed, Michal Martin will take over as the new T-shop, if it gets confirmed, that is. Finally, following the detention of multiple potential presidential candidates, including Viktor Babarika, who had set a new signature record with 16% of the entire Belarusian population signing for his candidacy, uh, Belarus has experienced a series of demonstrations in solidarity with the detained opposition, with several Belarusian celebrities endorsing protests on social media. Uh, peaceful human chains arose in all major cities in Belarus over the weekend, uh, and also Belarusians abroad have also taken to the streets in places like San Francisco, Munich, Warsaw, Berlin, Hamburg, Tel Aviv, Vilnius, Kiev, Moscow, and more. So it's turning into a real global movement of Belarusians uh, demanding change. Um, so in a pre-recorded video message published by the Babarika campaign after the candidate's detention, uh, he called for collecting signatures for a constitutional referendum in order to return to the 1994 Belarusian constitution in place prior to current authoritarian president Lukashenko assuming power. 
The 450,000 signatures needed for this uh, approximately correspond to the number of signatures uh, Babaruka had received for his candidacy. Uh, the Belarusian authorities will report on June 30th, which candidates qualify for the upcoming presidential election, which will take place in August. Are you listening to this podcast on iTunes or another platform that allows for reviews? Then please drop us one pretty please and why not make it five stars while you're at it. It will only take you a minute and it will mean the world for us at your collects. Also, if you like this podcast and you want to help us grow, be sure to also subscribe and of course tell people about us and share our episodes. Um, we're also happy to receive any ideas for segments, thoughts on topics. Um, and if there's anything really you think we should be covering or if you just want to say hi, do email us at podcast at europelex.eu. Be in touch. Hi there, folks. Ewan here again. And this week, I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with the brilliant Duncan Robinson. And that's uh, not the Miami Heat shoot guard, but the Economist Charlemagne correspondent and the Brussels bureau chief uh, for the magazine. Duncan, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Thanks very much for having me. And thank you for mentioning the Miami Heat guy who's been trashing my Google ranking for, for years now. <laughs> yeah, turning on a Google, a Google notification for your name must be really irritating. It's, um, it's not good. <laughs> so let's start... Um, maybe start with something a big question the coronavirus crisis obviously had a huge impact on european inter interrelations and european international relations policy do you think in 10 years if presuming the, the coronavirus crisis is over by then will we look back on this time as a as a as a positive time for the eu in terms of uh, reform and forward movement or no impact or a negative time my first instinct with this question is that it could be potentially positive because it acted as a catalyst for change because it felt like the EU was stuck in this slightly awkward, painful uh, holding pattern of this sort of half-baked federalism where basically the EU sort of had responsibility without power on lots of topics. So things like the euro, uh, having an incomplete sort of uh, monetary union, having a monetary union without um, fiscal union, it causes pain in the gaps between that. You can't run a proper policy that way. And it's a similar story with things like migration, where again, you had the sort of expectation that the EU, quote unquote, would, would, would be able to help, but voters felt let down. And so it needed a, something to shove it, to, to push it out of that direction. And, and, it, and it's taken something quite bad uh, a huge economic crisis and hundreds of thousands of dead. But it does seem that people, uh, particularly Angela Merkel, are, are, are thinking about the EU in a sort of structural, constitutional way, in a way that they just haven't for a long, long time. Yeah, particularly interesting with German presidency of the European Council coming up. Let's, let's talk economics here for a second. What, what role do you think that the, the economic recovery fund is going to have in in saving Europe from the oncoming recession? Do you think it will be uh, enough? Fiscally, I don't think it's going to have much of an effect. The, the, it's, it's 750 billion. Uh, the, the EU as a block is sort of 16, 17, 18 uh, trillion euros or thereabouts. It's a small percentage. Domestic governments are doing much more themselves uh, in terms of actual ready access to cash. 
Italy can borrow on the market perfectly adequately. It's not a repeat of the start of the decade where each Italian bond auction was uh, squeaky bum time, uh, to quote Alex Ferguson. It's, it's very, very different. And so in terms of the, the, the finances, it's, it's not a, it's big, but it's not an, an enormous deal. Where it's a big deal is, is in the politics of it. Like this is a big step towards a more federal uh, union. This is the EU issuing a very large, potentially a very large amount of debt. It's issued small amounts of debt before in the past, but on a, uh, on a, on a much bigger level. Uh, and that is significant. Um, and that will have big political consequences. In the South, you will have a feeling that they are being listened to, that they are being helped by Brussels. But in the North, you could have the opposite problem, which is that they'll be the ones who are expected to pay for it. Whether that's true or not uh, is another matter, but that's how they'll feel. And that's how it will sort of play out in the political sphere. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's uh, Europe's Alexander Hamilton moment. It, the decision on debt is going to have huge impact on the future of the European Union um, based on essentially perceptions right now of what that's going to mean for different corners of the, of the continent, right? Certainly, certainly. And it's a big shift by Germany. So back in, in spring, if you spoke to senior German officials, they, they were open to the idea of like a token amount of grants in the same way that the Dutch were. Um, but there was a big shift in German thinking. Some people have put this down to the, um, their constitutional court judgments, which sort of undermined the ECB's actions um, and made them realise that, oh, goodness me, we do need to do something ourselves. Um, but it pushed this, this positive step. Um, and it was a, a big, big political gesture that uh, Europe is in it together. You mentioned the Netherlands there. Um, yeah. And Austria, Denmark, Sweden have, have come to be dubbed the, the frugal four, as I'm sure our listeners will know. Um, how significant is that divide that's existed for a long time between the sort of more fiscally conservative uh, nations and heads of states? You know, how big is that divide between those four and, and other countries? What impact is that going to have on the EU's ability in the coming years to deal with crises like this? What's been interesting about the Frugal Four is how different things would have been uh, if Britain was still a member. Because it used to be that there was, there was this mindset, a sort of miserly mindset, there countries were able to not hide behind Britain, but use Britain as a, a sort of shield, a big, big member state. Um, very veto happy or um, in, 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 when it comes to these sorts of topics. Um, and, and so an idea like the recovery fund just wouldn't have been proposed if Britain was still a member. But Britain's gone. And that means that these countries have to try and water down these proposals without getting sort of steamrolled, without really fundamentally damaging uh any alliances within the eu and so that's a very very delicate balance and it's just there's a i get the impression with the frugal four that they're not i, I this doesn't feel like they're close to attaching suicide vests and, and themselves and sort of charging into the european council building it's it feels like there is a deal to be done they will try and water it down they will try and install more conditionality make sure that there's uh, sort of strict terms and conditions and apply to to any of these grants but it feels like they're open to a deal that uh, includes lots of grants, lots of loans, as long as they can demonstrate to their voters that 
this is good for them. This is good for Dutch taxpayers. Right. I think this is exactly the point. When, you know, when the UK was a member state, a lot of its sort of, you know, austerity alliance on in the European Council drive was around showing voters back home that it was being aggressive with the EU bureaucracy in inverted commas. How significant is that for for other European member states to show their voters that they are being, you know, hawkish over economic policy when it comes to uh, Brussels? It's, it's, it's very important. So because Britain's left, there's also going to be a big jump in contributions for uh, Denmark and co. Um, so small, rich countries. And it's, it's very sizable uh, amounts of money. So, so Denmark, I think, is going to have to put in an extra sort of six or seven billion, I think, was one figure that I saw. And that, that, that is big sums of money for rel- relatively small countries. And voters aren't necessarily uh, going to like that. But I think that's, again, whether... Commission's been quite smart, well, the, and, uh, and the council as well, is in sort of mashing together the recovery fund with negotiations over the budget. That basically gives them a lot of leeway. So while um, the, the frugal four will have to give quite a bit on the recovery fund, when it comes to the budget itself, which is a bigger sum of money, um, they can drive a much harder bargain. That was going to be the fight before the pandemic broke out. It was a fight over how big the EU budget should be. And it was actually quite a small... Uh, amount of money they were arguing over. It was basically 0.1% of a country's GDP. It was a really, really narrow sort of angels on the head of a pin sum of money. Whereas now, if you, you can imagine a scenario where the frugals get to keep their rebates, they get to keep a flat EU budget, and they get this, they can emphasize that the recovery fund's not a Hamiltonian moment, it's a one-off, time-limited thing due to this one-off weird crisis where everyone, everyone's in, in it together. So it feels like there is actually plenty of, of leeway for, for everyone to get something from this. I suppose there's a more existential question here is, how much cut-through is there genuinely about things like the European Recovery Fund? You know, do ordinary people know and or care about this? Does it actually make a difference on their lives how, you know, even, if it, even though it is, you know, 750 billion pounds, a seemingly large number, when it gets mm. down to them, are ordinary people gonna gonna notice if the European Recovery Fund exists or not? That's a very good question. Um, we don't speak, speak to friends in in Sweden, for example. They've been surprised at how uh, little uh, attention there has there has been on on this. But it's a question of who is trying to make political capital of it. There are parties in each of these countries that will happily wave around a very large number and say, "Look, we're going to have to hand X billion more to Brussels. Do you want to do that?" Uh, and Britain shows a good example of, of what can happen if you do have parties willing to go down that road. So let's move on to have a quick look at what, what, what's been criticised in the European fiscal policy around the coronavirus crisis has been its response in relationship with the neighbourhood, so to speak, particularly talking about um, what we talked about in the podcast before is Serbian President Vucic's response. Uh, you know, he's been vocally critical of the EU in recent months, the quote I think was, um, there's no such thing as European solidarity. Has Europe sacrificed the neighbourhood in favour of the member states there? Or do you think it's just posturing by President Vucic? I think the EU has been screwing up its neighbourhood policy for far, far longer than the, 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 the pandemic has been an issue. It's what really struck me when I moved back to Brussels at the start of the year was this, this emphasis on the, on the sort of geopolitical commission. But they couldn't even sort of come up with a coherent position on North Macedonia at that point. You saw the French, who have been the ones 
calling most loudly for the EU to adopt the sort of hard-nosed international worldview, and yet was completely unwilling to take a strategic view on something in the Western Balkans. Um, and so that, that, there is this disconnect between the EU wanting to be a player on the global stage and its failure to be a player in its own backyard. This global stage question, I think you've been uh, writing a lot about this for, um, for work and your columns recently. And, and there's been a lot of talk across the sort of Brussels bubble about, about the EU's relationship with China mm. um, in the coming years. And particularly in the Western Balkan situation, we've had uh, Chinese investment and support for some years, not just during the coronavirus, um, for example. And my mind goes to the, to the, the Serbian first division of football being named after a, a Chinese tyre company. Uh, there's been a lot of investment in relationships in the Western Balkan countries and, and, and China. What, does that, what impact does that have on the future of the European Union, do you think? When, when I started this job at uh, the start of the year, I was asking people, like, what, what's going to be the big issue? Uh, what's everyone in Brussels talking about? What are the main fundamental existential problems for the EU? And everybody said uh, China, US, and where the EU uh, puts itself um geopolitically between them and there's this this like do you if if the, you think there's going to be this sort of big bar fight between china and the us do do we pile in um and, and join in the sort of form of western alliance or do we just sort of quietly sort of sip our drink at the bar and pretend it, it's not going on um and so there is this sort of internal uh battle within within the eu like how what line the eu should take on china and there's, there's, there's the other side of the debate is like what influence China has in the EU. And I think that can be overplayed a little bit. So I wrote this column the other week and was just sort of curious about how much everyone talks about just China's fiscal ability to sort of, sort of buy friends in, in, in Europe. But if you look at Chinese foreign direct investment, it was 12 billion in 2019. Like the EU spends five times that figure just on subsidizing farmers. It's if you are willing to throw away your, if let's say you're a small, small, small Eastern European country um, look, 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 looking for cheap and easy, easy cash and influence, the Brussels is such a better deal than China <laughs> to, to an almost unimaginable degree. And yes, China can sort of feel it gives you a little bit of leverage, but it only gives you leverage to sort of shake, shake, more, shake more leeway out of Brussels, if that, if that makes sense. And I think a, a similar thing goes, goes in the Western Balkans. It's, it's only really Serbia that's been particularly noisy on it. So on the rest of it, in terms of North Macedonia and stuff, it feels more like sort of em, 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 empty threats more than anything else. Yeah, the, being caught between the, the rock and the, the hard place of China and the US relations is something that I think um, a lot of uh, EU diplomats and, and officials have been quite worried about. Mm. How much does... November matter, do you think, in that um, and the, the, the coming presidential election? Because, you know, Chinese-US relations, you know, haven't been great for a long time, but the last four years are particularly strenuous. Do you think Trump's re-election would cement a position more for the EU? Yeah, there's a lot of discomfort with American position on China is actually just discomfort with Trump who's just a very unpopular president in Europe and not something someone that European leaders seem to be, want to be willing to be in bed with. But that doesn't change the fundamental issues, is that 
EU diplomats are desperate not to be dragged into uh, any sort of hegemonic conflict. That's the way they describe it, a hegemonic conflict between, between the US and China. Um, that they, they admit that they've got way more in common with the US and far closer ties and ideologically, financially, whatever, whatever you pick. But they are not going to go down that road with the US. They're determined not to do that. And I don't think that will change, even if you have a sort of Biden uh, presidency in the US. Makes for some interesting thoughts and some uh, big decisions coming ahead for the European Union. Um, and I'm sure as things unfold in, in European politics over the next few years, we'll, we'll have you back to talk again. Duncan, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Great. See you soon. Cool. Cheers, mate. Europe Alex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors, and we definitely aren't an institution of the European Union, as some of our lovely followers seem to think and imply from time to time. Everything we do, including this podcast and our shiny new and improved website, is only made possible with the help of our supporters. And we, of course, want to do more. We started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro a month. So please don't miss out. Support us on Patreon. Um, thank you. So now it's time for our Who is Who segment, uh, European Commission edition still. Um, we have a few more left to go, and both Jordan and I will go through um, a couple of the remaining commissioners that we haven't already told you about. I'm not sure who you picked out the hat this week, Ewan. I have uh, our friend from Finland, Ute Urpelainen. Ute is a Finnish politician who currently serves as the EU's Commissioner for International Partnerships. Urpelainen's political career started way back in her youth when she served as the president of the Young European Federalists of Finland group in 2001. And in 2003, she was elected to the Finnish parliament as a representative of the centre-left Social Democratic Party. After just five years of parliament, she was elected party leader, a position she held for six years between 2008 and 2014. From 2011 to 2014, she was also the country's deputy prime minister and finance minister. Following an unsuccessful re-election bid for a party leader in 2014, Urpelainen started working with the Finnish foreign ministry until she was nominated to join the current EU commission. As Commissioner for International Partnerships, Erpa Leinen's job is to oversee the EU's international cooperation and development policy and build inclusive and equitable partnerships to reduce global poverty and support sustainable development. So again, not a small brief by any means. Who have you managed to get uh, hold of? Uh, all, uh, I mean, to be fair, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be small briefs for our, our dear commissioners. I have Janusz Wojciechowski. Um, and he is a Polish politician who currently serves as the EU Commissioner for Agriculture. So that's another um, really key one. While he started out his career as a prosecutor, Wojciechowski has a distinguished career in both Polish and EU-level politics. From the early 1990s to the mid-90s, he was active within the center-right Polish People's Party, which he also represented in the country's parliament uh, from 1993 to 1995, and then from 2001 to 2004. And following Poland's first elections to the EU parliament, Wojciechowski served as an MEP for 12 years, representing first again the Polish People's Party. Um, he then represented uh, the Piast Party, which was a breakout of the Polish People's Party. And then finally election, he joined the Law and Justice Party list. Uh, and as I'm sure you all know, that's the ruling right-wing party in Poland. 
2016, he left the EU Parliament in order to become a member of the Court of Auditors in the EU. So he really has uh, a long distinguished uh, career uh, in the EU uh, as it stands. Um, and it kind of goes without saying what Wojciechowski is tasked with as Commissioner for Agriculture. Um, basically, he just has to ensure that the EU's agricultural sector is competitive and modern. Uh, and as the, the EU would say, uh, adapting to changes in climate, demographics, and technologies. And more specifically, this includes contributing to what they call a farm to fork strategy for healthy and high quality food in the EU, improving animal welfare standards. And uh, he's also working on developing an action plan for organic farming in the EU, apparently. Um, so that's his brief. And obviously in the EU, it's a really big one with uh, huge budget and spending and uh, lots on the line. So I hope Wojciechowski does that well. Thank you for listening to the Europelex podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review, guys. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media, except Instagram, that is. Uh, as I say every time, it's at europe underscore lex uh, if you want to follow us there. Um, so thank you and see you next time. Stay home, stay safe. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrun. The managing editor was Polychronos Karepoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado.